Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Coach Elizabeth. When I started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. So now I'm here to answer all your questions about running and running adjacent topics to help you become a better, smarter, more knowledgeable runner. Whether you're brand new or you've been doing this for a while, there's always more we can learn about running. And now you can train with Running Explained wherever you go. Check out the new Run Club by Running Explained app. The Run Club by Running Explained gives you the freedom to build your own training schedule using Running Explained training plans, including training for races, building your base, post-race recovery, running for fitness, and more, and you can swap between plans as needed. Then layer on a running-specific strength training program that matches your goals and includes plyo, core, and mobility. Plus, you have instant access to a variety of resources at your fingertips, including training guides, pacing resources, Run Fueling 101, and more. Join the Run Club Plus for a monthly live group coaching call led by me, Coach Elizabeth, plus in-app chat support and other fun inclusions. Start your three-day free trial now at runningexplained.co slash the run club or by visiting the link in the show notes. And now let's get started. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Compton, postdoctoral researcher focusing on the intersection of nutrition, physical activity, and metabolism on cancer outcomes and survivorship. Now, today we're not really going to talk about cancer, we're going to talk about the nutrition, physical activity, and metabolism part of it. (laughs) One of Stephanie's passions, alongside being a runner and endurance athlete herself, is to help bridge the gap between science and real life to help others ask questions and dig deeper into understanding nutrition. Now, why are we talking about metabolism today? Metabolism is one of those topics that in my work, the volume of questions I receive, the number of people that I talk to on a regular basis, I've heard enough, let's just call it weird stuff about how metabolism is generally perceived and thought about, especially in the endurance space, that I figured it's time to set the record straight and make sure we actually understand the amazing thing that is our metabolism. Dr. Stephanie Compton, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks again for having me. So go ahead and please introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And if you want to talk about your athletic background, you can do that as well. Sure. So my name is Dr. Stephanie Compton. Um, I am a researcher slash science communicator who's really passionate about bridging the gap between science and real life. So in my day job, I, I do research doing lifestyle interventions like nutrition and exercise 
uh, with cancer survivors to help improve cancer outcomes. Um, and then on the side, I also do science communication, um, mostly via Instagram, about kind of breaking myths and bridging science in real life, talking about like, how can we really look at like what, how can we be critical of the things that we see online? What is our metabolism like? How can we use nutrition and exercise during cancer? Like that kind of background. So that's kind of the general overview of what I do. Um, in terms of my athletic pursuits, I was kind of like, I guess not really an exerciser earlier in my life. Um, and then kind of turned into the more like meathead lifting <laughs> kind of area where I was mainly powerlifting. But in 2020, I actually discovered that I really loved trail running and kind of took that up um, and took more long distances and everything. Um, I just ran my first 30K in November. Yes, November. And I just signed up for a 50K that I'm currently training for. So I will be running that in April. I'm very excited to do that. So I have plenty of personal experience also with kind of um, my own running pursuits and everything and have discovered that I really like it. So that's fabulous. Well, yeah. Welcome to the world of running. It sucks you when it never lets you go. And then you're like, yeah, I would never do that. And then two years later, you're like, oh, I would totally want to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll end up signing up for the 50K. So. <laughs> And the reason I ask, um, cause I know you are obviously as a runner, but you are also a, a lot of things athletically. And, and the common question I have to start the show is how did you become a runner? But here's the thing. I also like us all to, if you want to identify as a runner, that's great. But I also like us to be more than just runners, yeah. <laughs> whether you are a runner and someone who lifts or a runner who also swims or a runner who also skis. And you're also, you know, a, a friend and a sister and a partner and uh, all these things. Like sometimes in our space, I feel like it's really easy to, to, to define down who we are to this one singular identity. And like, that's always a dangerous place to be. You should always be multidimensional. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so today we're talking about metabolism, which might seem like a weird tangent for a podcast about running to go on. But I honestly think it's very integral to our understanding of how our bodies work, how we can work with our bodies for achieving our running goals. And also this is a topic where I find that I hear the weirdest stuff and misconceptions and myths about when it comes to metabolism. So um, let's start at the very basics and explain to us what is metabolism? <laughs> That's a great question, right? And I, I agree. I see this all the time also where I, I, and I've asked people before, like in my audience or in real life, like, what, what do you think of when you think of your metabolism? And I've, I've gotten question like answers to this of anywhere from like, you know, I, the usual answer is a furnace or like a fire that's burning and it burns our calories and that's what it does. Um, but I've also gotten like answers like a genetic gift I wasn't given and like <laughs> this kind of stuff. So I, I feel like with a lot of times we think of our metabolism as this thing that is a calorie burner and that's kind of where we stop with it. And that's not really helped by a lot of like social media content or the media because it's, it's always the conversation of how do we boost our metabolism? How do we boost our calorie burning capacity, right? And so that's why I think a lot of us have really divided it down to really just say, it's, it's just a calorie burner. Like this is how I'm burning calories and that's what it is. Um, but metabolism in and of itself is all of the like biochemical metabolic processes in your body, right? It's not just 
how you're burning calories. It's the things that are happening that also build up in your body. So yes, you, you are breaking down food and you're using that food to make energy, but along that process, all of the different parts of that process are being used also for things like biosynthesis. So making things, um, we're using that energy both to, to build things and break down things. And we're also just using it to be alive, right? Like we need energy and calories and metabolic processes just to exist. So it's, it's more than just a calorie burner. And I really like have made it part of my mission to really help people <laughs> understand that it's more than that, it's because when we reduce it down to that, we also tend to moralize it. And by moralizing it, we end up thinking that we are somehow bad or our metabolism is somehow bad because it isn't doing what we have somehow thought that we should be doing with it. Right. And so I want to try to separate that out and say like, no, your metabolism is not bad and no, it's not slow. And this is not something that is some kind of moral failure of yours. Your metabolism is yours and it's going to respond to what you give it. Um, and it's going to be all of those processes, not just burning calories. I love that. It's a great simplified explanation. I will freely admit as we dive into this topic that obviously you are literally a PhD on the subject, but this is also an area where I am firmly like, I think I know the basics, mm -hmm. but I also want to be very clear. Like if I ask a question that doesn't make sense, <laughs> because my, maybe the fundamental misunderstanding I have is, you know, when you, somebody asks you a question, you're like, well, the, the premise of your question is wrong. So let's start there. Yeah. Um, but I want to be very upfront in saying that, like, if that happens during this episode, please obviously feel free to jump in and be like, actually, here's, here's, uh, here's what we're really starting to talk about here. So this right off the bat, right. We're talking about, it's not just a furnace. This is oh, your body builds up, breaks down, keeps you alive, does all the things. It all comes back to your metabolism mm -hmm. and something that I hear from people. And I, I agree with you. It's, it's hard to separate, you know, the kind of diet culture talk we have about having a, oh, a lucky, you have such a good metabolism or like, oh, I can eat anything and never gain weight or, oh, my metabolism's broken. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh Oh, I did this. And now my metabolism is broken. What are some of the factors that impact how your metabolism reacts to things? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and a lot of the things that are going to help your metabolism respond, right? Like again, your metabolism is doing what it needs to do regardless, just to keep you alive. Right. So there's that portion of metabolism. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of refer to this in terms of our daily calorie needs, because it is related to that. Um, even though I just said it's more than that, <laughs> like, but that again, that's how most people think of it. So I'm going to relate it to that. Right. So in your total energy expenditure, so how much energy you're expending per day, part of that energy expenditure is your resting metabolic rate. So like your resting energy expenditure, how much you, how much energy you need and things that you need just to exist. And then on top of that, you also have your thermic effect of food, which is essentially like the energy you need to digest the food that you eat. Um, and then you have non-activity exercise thermogenesis or non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That is like me talking with my hands. That's me walking to the fridge and getting a snack out of the fridge, right? Like it's, it's your activity during the day when you're moving around, you're not just laying down all day doing that kind of thing. Like you're doing stuff and you're awake and you're aware and you're moving about, right? So that's that energy expenditure. And then you also have your physical activity. So anything on top of that, that you're doing to be physically active, the runs you're going on, the lifting you're doing, like all of that is also added in. So the things that can influence your metabolism are part partly in those building blocks, right? So 
with a lot of people, I think they try to hack their metabolism and say, what are the things I can do to like drastically improve it um, without really considering just the basic building blocks that you need. So being physically active is a great way to improve your metabolic function and to have your metabolism. Like if you are thinking about like, okay, your energy expenditure, like physical activity is part of that, right? So being physically active and having adequate muscle mass. So doing lifting um, and activity in general is going to help your metabolism, right? So that eating enough is another thing that's going to help <laughs> your metabolism. You need to have adequate calories um, and meet your needs for through nutrition, right? Um, and then other things like sleep. Right. So those are really basic building blocks. And I know a lot of people tend to think of like, oh, well, I need spicy foods or I need the metabolism drops or like something completely random. But those are some of the biggest building blocks of like actually having a positive impact on your metabolism. I know that few people are probably complaining that their metabolism is too good. Like it's too, <laughs> yeah. I would say, okay, because uh, so actually I, I phrase that incorrectly based on the question I want to ask on this. Rarely do I hear people complain, gee, my metabolism burns so bright, right? <laughs> that I just am just like, you know, I'm on fire all the time. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes when people are thinking about their metabolism at all, they are thinking about it in the context of it's not working hard enough. It's not working fast enough. I want it to be, you know, better, bigger, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But from an evolutionary standpoint, isn't it better for us that our metabolism is very efficient, that it can run on what we give it? Like, I'm just thinking about from a survival standpoint, it would be inefficient for us as a species if we had extraordinary metabolic needs just to stay alive. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so exactly. And in, in evolutionarily, making sure that we can match our energy expenditure and our metabolism to our intake and not get to the point where our energy expenditure is so incredibly high that we can't match it with our intake is something that is kind of like well conserved, right? So even in like, for example, like populations that are very physically active, like hunter gatherer populations, those populations still have a pretty similar energy expenditure to the populations like in the United States that don't necessarily do that. Like, so across kind of humanity, energy expenditure is pretty well conserved, right? And so, yes, like there are in inter-individual differences in that. So some people might have, you know, a like genetic or environmental or um, like age-related increase in metabolism compared to like maybe some other some other person. But we're not talking like thousands of calories per day. Usually it's probably like maybe like 50 to 150. Like it's not very large, right? So it's it's a combination of yes, there are some differences in metabolism. And so some people might have more efficient metabolisms in honestly, in terms of efficiency, being able to actually like not expend more energy than you take in is more efficient from that perspective. Um, but from our perspective of efficiency of being able to eat whatever we want to, right? Like there are some differences in that, but overall is probably due to other factors too, right? Like you're either exercising more, you're eating less than you think you are. Um, that kind of thing is probably more of an explanation than actual metabolic rate, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I continually have to remind myself in thinking about just the human body in general, it's that we've only been living our current lifestyle for a very, 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 very short period of time yeah, sure. in the scope of humanity. And like, to be honest, we're not optimized for this. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that leads into my next question where in the context of endurance fitness, right? Endurance running, endurance cycling, triathlon, whatever it is, obviously probably 90% running. Cause that is the show. Um, we want to be more efficient. It is more beneficial for us. If I can run for us, it's more beneficial for me, mm-hmm. right? If I can be very efficient in the energy I must expend on my 10 mile run versus if I were very metabolically inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I I experienced when I entered the running space and you know I first started running because I wanted to lose weight. So I was very focused on like, I burned this many calories on my run, which like, the calorie counters, we can talk about those later. Mm-hmm. And then as I, as I was becoming more and more fit, I realized that my um, my quote unquote calories burned were decreasing for a, a run of the same distance because my heart rate was decreasing because I was increasing my fitness and all that. And I was like, oh no, I'm burning fewer calories. But that was back then. Now I'm like, yeah, I was getting so much more efficient. <laughs> um, is this something that you see people have a misconception about too? You're like, actually, you want to be more efficient metabolically, especially when we're you know, trying to go for a 30K trail run. Yeah, exactly. And that same thing, like I've heard people saying like, oh, well, uh, you know, as I'm becoming more fit, then I'm not burning as many calories or like they kind of notice that maybe they're not getting the same kind of feedback that they would normally have been getting, maybe in terms of like, for, for example, like running for weight loss or something like that. Maybe they're not getting the same feedback that they were getting beforehand as they continue running. Um, And yeah, exactly. You want to be more efficient (laughs) and and part of becoming fitter is becoming more efficient. It is an improvement in blood flow. It is an improvement in your mitochondrial function in your muscles. Like it, you're improving all of those processes by giving the stimulus of exercise. And so that's why that's one of the ways to improve metabolism is through exercise because in part becoming more fit and doing that stimulus over and over and over again, you're helping the systems of your body and the, the things that your metabolism does become more efficient. So yes, you definitely want to become more efficient. You might not burn as many calories as before, but like that process of doing that is actually helping your metabolism function better. Which I think is a huge shift in how we think about our bodies and expenditure and fueling, like it's all kind of wrapped up in like, ah, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, we, we tend to moralize it too. So it's like, oh, well, if I, if I burned this many calories on my run, then that was a good run versus like, oh, this run felt easier than my run last week. And I burned fewer calories and my heart rate variability was better. Like I'm getting fitter. And so that's actually like a better thing to look for rather than just the calorie burn. So let's talk about calorie counters <laughs> um, and calorie calorie burning. Um, what is your professional and educated opinion on wearable calorie burning estimates? Um, I think that we should not live or die by them for sure. <laughs> um, the, the It's really, like you said, it's an estimate, right? So it's just giving an an estimate based on an algorithm that's probably based on an equation, right? For estimating how many calories you burn if you are at a given weight for a given intensity of exercise, right? So it's it's based kind of like 
downstream of calculations and things. So it's a way to estimate, but it is not accurate, right? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, it shouldn't be something that you say, okay, well, I went on this run and I burned 600 calories. So I'm going to eat back 500 calories because I want to lose weight or something like that, which I don't recommend doing TBH, but we can get into that in a minute. Um, so like, I wouldn't necessarily use that as a way to say, again, I wouldn't use it to say that whether our run was good or not, <laughs> regardless, but I also wouldn't necessarily say that it's like the best way to fuel your workouts either of saying like, oh, well, I burned 300 calories on this. So I'm going to eat back 200 or something like that. There's like better ways to fuel that. And we should think about fueling our workouts during them anyway, especially if they're longer. Um, but in terms of like, again, the accuracy of them, they're not super accurate and I wouldn't necessarily rely on them for any kind of like direct measurement. So for people who have been doing a little live or die math mm -hmm. daily, based on their MyFitnessPal and their Apple Watch calorie burn, what would your kind of, hey, here's how you can transition out of that, like gentle advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So if, if you're somebody that has been using something like MyFitnessPal, for example, so whenever you get into MyFitnessPal and you are saying like, this is information about me, like my current weight, my age, all of that kind of stuff, here's how active I am. Um, and then you are also inputting your exercise into that. Essentially what you're doing is double dipping into your exercise. So the way that my fitness pal calculates anyway, is probably it's based on predictive equations for energy expenditure. Right. And when you do that, you factor in activity to that. And that gives you your estimated energy expenditure. So, cause there's an activity factor that you multiply by. Um, so if you're double dipping already <laughs> by one using that that already included an activity factor when it asked you about your activity level and then you're inputting your exercise and you say okay my apple watch said that i burned 300 calories so then you put in my fitness pal minus 300 calories for i don't know an hour run or something like that you're essentially double counting that and so you're probably already like not necessarily hitting what you should have been in the first place does that make sense so you're because you're double dipping already I would start with not inputting your exercise into my fitness pal. Um, I never recommend people to do that because again, you're double dipping if you do. So I would start there. If you're somebody that's been using that, um, don't input your activity levels there. Um, and just kind of use what my fitness pal is telling you or calculate yourself if you're interested in that. Um, and then if you're kind of somebody who's been using your Apple watch and estimating calories that way, um, I, I mean, again, it's, it's going to be not very accurate in general. And so I tend to not necessarily even look at the calories that I've burned. I go more off of like how I'm feeling during the run, if I need to maybe feel more or something like that. So really getting more in tune with how you feel before, during, after the run and the rest of the day also, because all, all that you're doing all day, every day is also in part what's fueling your running, right? So I would go more off of that than I would the calorie burn. Um, and you can go off of like, if you're, if you're somebody who is trying to lose weight or trying to maintain weight, tracking that over time can help you kind of manipulate what you're doing. And that's going to be a little bit more accurate than trying to go off of the calorie count. 
we don't often talk about weight loss on this show as like, hey, here's how to lose weight because it's something that is going to be hyper specific to an individual and may or may not be healthy depending on what their goals are and where they're starting from and all of that. But um, I will tell you a story because I am, I'm also training for an ultra. And so I was like, yeah, I got to make sure I'm eating enough carbs, right? Like in my training. And so I have my fitness pal on my phone because I've had it there forever. And I go through periods of using it, not using it. I was like, I'm just going to start tracking my food to make sure that I'm eating enough. Mm-hmm. And then I was poking around the back end and I was like, oh, I wonder what it would suggest if I told it I wanted to lose weight because I haven't played with this forever. And so I, you know, put in my height and I put in my weight and I put in my activity level. And then I said, I want to lose the most weight it could possibly lose based on your algorithm. And it gave me a daily recommended uh, calories of 1200 calories. And I I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, mm, even like, you know, whatever their their activity rating is, I was like, not the the most active, but I was like one level down. I was like, hey, I'm I'm pretty active. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's, that's weird. So I was like, well, if I want to lose a little bit, like, try to lose like what was it two pounds per week and I was like what if I did a pound and I'm not trying to lose weight I want to preface this by saying like I was just let's see what happens <laughs> let's see what it says and then it bumped me up so if I only wanted to lose a one and a half pounds per week which is a lot of weight loss that's a relatively rapid weight loss um it was like oh you can eat 1450 calories per day and I was like this just seems incredibly low mm-hmm. so my question to you then is do you see people who are pursuing body recomposition, i.e. I'm trying to lose body fat, get into trouble because they're eating way too little? Yeah. I would imagine that that is like if I embarked on that journey and I, in the past, I have eaten 1200 calorie diets. Like, yes, I'm a woman in her thirties. I've done all the diets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I can do it for a couple of weeks and then bad things happen. Like it's not sustainable. Um, but it's just crazy to me that like, that's still a number that popped up. So yes, mm-hmm. I know it can be done, but it's miserable. And it's probably backfiring on a ton of people who are trying to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and absolutely. And cutting calories too extremely is not going to work for a couple of reasons, right? So I think the most important reason to remember is that by doing that and cutting it, especially down to 1200, 1400, something like that, especially when you're active, um, it's going to suck, <laughs> right? Like it, it doesn't feel good. You're hungry all the time. Like everyone else is kind of living their life, right? And so from a from a behavioral standpoint of cutting that severely and cutting that drastically, you're more than like, like it's more likely that you're gonna pendulum swing, right? So if you pendulum swing in the complete opposite direction of saying, I'm going to eat as little as possible, it's going to inevitably have you pendulum swing, not necessarily to eating as much as possible, but you're not going to be able to sustain it, right? Because it is, it is very hard and you have all this feedback from your body of saying like, hey, you're hungry. Hey, you're hungry. So like your mind and your body is telling you, and then you have things like fatigue or like your workouts are not going as great as they used to. You can't run as far, like that kind of thing. So more so from a behavioral standpoint is where I see like most people having a trouble with it. Um, There is an extent to which there is like a metabolic adaptation to that. And I want to talk for just a second about like the starvation mode, because I think a lot of people know of that, but it's kind of something that doesn't actually like exist. So starvation mode in terms of like, if you cut your calories drastically, you'll actually gain fat mass, um, which doesn't make like sense from like a thermodynamic standpoint, like you- Like physics doesn't allow that. (laughs) 
So, so starvation mode isn't necessarily a thing, but there is an extent to which there's a little bit of adaptation if you're chronically underfueling. Um, and again, this is going to be more so in the terms of chronic underfueling versus like a couple weeks. Um, but as you also lose body weight, your your energy needs will correspond to that. So again, some people kind of notice that too, where they may lose weight, but then the calories that they were eating either isn't getting them the results or they start to feel like not as good or something like that, or it's harder to stick to. So it's because there's some degree to which your energy needs are related to your body size. So there's that, that kind of part too, um, of like the adaptation of, as you lose weight, your metabolism is going to adapt to that as well. But, um, I would say that more so I see people get in trouble because of the adherence and the behavior change part of that. And so doing something that is, again, either taking it in seasons where you're not necessarily doing like a training running season at the same time you're doing like a body recomp season. That's what I would recommend if it's something you're interested in um, or taking a very, very moderate approach and taking it extremely slow because not only is that going to be something that's more behaviorally manageable because it's, you have to have it be something that you continue to do past 12 weeks, right? Like a lot of people will just do it for 12 weeks and then they'll kind of go back to what they were doing. You have to have it be something that you can actually manage to do for a long term. So it's more behaviorally manageable um, and you don't feel as bad <laughs> during the, during the process because you're not cutting your calories so drastically. What, let me just, you know, kind of play this to the end of the logical conclusion is that, well, what happens if we are approaching long-term chronic underfueling? So, because I, that is, I will say, I preface this, I just did an episode on reds. Like, so we've already kind of talked about that, but just from like, a, like, I think people are so concerned with like, you know, being afraid their metabolism is broken, which obviously isn't a thing. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that you can damage yourself if you're not caring for the whole package. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so going back to that, right. You have, you do have adaptations and things to a low energy availability that can affect you from a whole body scale. So res is a great example. Um, and yes, you do, when you approach that more chronic energy, deficit like it is going to affect your metabolic rate to an extent right like you are going to adapt to that energy availability and so your metabolism is going to go adapt to that so you aren't necessarily like fully damaging your metabolism right you can recover from that and you can recover from from things like reds too but it becomes to a point too that if you are doing it to the point that you're damaging things like your bone mass like that's very hard to come back from and it can be very detrimental in the long term. So that's one reason why like you wouldn't necessarily want to do, even if you were wanting to do like a very drastic calorie cut, you would not want to do it for a long term just because of the implications of things that could happen from the long term. So while your metabolism could recover from that, you might also have side effects from things like your bone mass or your muscle mass that could last longer than that. I have a question then, yeah, and I don't know if there's any research on this. I know that we, it, it's generally, as I think, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's generally accepted that people who yo-yo diet, right, large, you know, swings of weight loss, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, weight loss, weight gain, mm -hmm. tend to have just generally poor outcomes from a body comp and a health perspective mm -hmm. um, compared to people whose weight is more stable, even if that weight is at a higher set point. Mm -hmm. Would that possibly be related to essentially periods of constant, like cyclical semi-starvation? 
Um, that's a good question. And I, I don't know if I know, have like an actual research based answer. <laughs> like, you know, I, I know of a clinical trial that has looked at this. Um, but in, in thinking about it, like whether or not that could have an effect, it could, right. I don't know. It would just depend on the individual and how long that they've done it. So like, for example, if the yo-yo is like over the course of years versus if it's like 12 weeks, 12 weeks, 12 weeks, like more of a, a shorter term yo-yo, I think that is what it would mainly depend on. Does that make sense? So like if you're somebody who's gone like maybe two or three years in a chronic energy deficit, and then you go two or three years and you're higher, and then you go two or three years and you're lower again, like that might be more of a detriment than if it was shorter term. But either way, yes, I agree. Um, having like that yo-yoing back and forth is associated with poorer outcomes than just maintaining like weight stability for sure. But that's a great question, and I will look into some research on it. I know. I, I don't do research, but I can ask questions of people who do. <laughs> yes. Oh, which is so cool, right? Because you're like, hey, there's always something. You're like, what if we looked at this? What if we looked at exactly. that? But yeah. I mean, I want to also acknowledge the real challenge that you have in your field in that studying human metabolism is really tricky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Mostly because, I mean, we, we have really sophisticated ways to measure metabolism now, which I think is, it's like so cool to be able to see some of those things in real life, like as a researcher. So things like metabolic chambers, right, where it's rooms that people can stay in for like 24 hours and just go about their normal day and we can estimate their energy expenditure based on the oxygen that they consume. Like that is so cool that to be able to see things like that. Um, and it's, but it's also hard to think about energy expenditure kind of in the long term. One, because we haven't done it in like, you know, it would be so nice to be able to make like massive cohorts of studying people in metabolic chambers, but that's just not something that we have the ability to do because it's very expensive. Um, but it's also really hard to measure like energy intake and energy consumption. So yes, measuring humans is very hard um, and we have a lot of limitations to it, but we also have really cool ways that we can. And so like, that's one thing that I really love about being in kind of like the me metabolism adjacent to, you know, that kind of thing. I study more cancer metabolism personally, but like all the metabolism ways that we can measure different things is just incredibly cool. Going off your specific uh, area of expertise, met metabolism and cancer, um, I do know that some, well, yes, there's a lot of work we still have to do in the endurance field and in general, making people less afraid of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. But I have heard like almost verbatim objections to fueling on runs because of fears of sugar and cancer. Oh. Like somebody once said to me, I don't want to use gels on my run that's pure sugar and I don't want that to contribute to my risk of cancer. And I was like, I don't have enough information to like talk to you about this, but I will file this away to ask somebody who has a better answer. Um, so what, what would you say to that person, uh, who, who has that belief? I, that's very interesting that you've kind of heard that from people. I, I don't know if I've heard that for, risk of cancer. I've heard it mainly in the cancer space in terms of like people who are currently cancer survivors. So have actively have cancer, um, or have had it in the past. So that's very interesting. I would say that, I mean, just from the outset, right? Like cancer metabolism, metabolism is complicated. Cancer metabolism is even more complicated and considering how sugar is in our bodies, right? Like glucose is glucose is glucose. So 
the glucose that you would eat from a gel is no different from the glucose that you would get from like any other carbohydrate source. It's the same glucose. So it's no matter what it is, it's going to look the same in your body. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then that same thing applies to cancer, right? Like you need glucose yourself and sugar isn't necessarily the only thing that feeds cancer. And so by eating more sugar, you're not necessarily feeding cancer or increasing your risk of cancer. So it's, and it's especially important when you're running, right, to have those easy forms of carbohydrates because that's what's actively fueling your activity. And so it's not necessarily, it wouldn't be related to raising your risk of cancer, even if you had cancer already, to consume like a gel during, um, during a run or anything like that. It's always interesting to me being in this space, and I'm sure you obviously get this too, where you talk to a bunch of different people, different types of people from different backgrounds and hearing like the, the things that they believe and like the kind of things that they've kind of put together and think, huh, I like, I wonder, I wonder where that came from. Like, I wonder where you heard that. Or I wonder, you know, cause we all have our beliefs and things that we've learned and, and conclusions we've kind of formed about how we think the way things are, or, you know, I shouldn't do this or I should do that or whatever it is. Um, but sometimes they're just a little funky and you're like, I wonder where that came from. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And like, I'm not, if any, yes, reducing your cancer risk, like get exercise, don't smoke cigarettes like this, you know, mm-hmm. it's all for, yes, you should do the things that reduce your risk. But um, it's always interesting to me when, when there are some really like, huh, okay, that's, haven't heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, say. <laughs> So thinking about metabolism, there's two terms I want to ask you about, Mm -hmm. um, things that are anabolic and things that are catabolic. We're going like layer, you know, leveling up in what metabolism is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think anybody who's heard of anabolic, probably in the context of anabolic steroids, Mm -hmm. um, and then catabolic, uh, essentially is kind of the opposite. How can we think about those things, those processes, uh, in our bodies? That's a great question. And again, I think we, we tend to think of anabolic and catabolic. So anabolic building up, catabolic breaking down, right? We tend to think of them as equal and opposite as in like, we're anabolic or we are catabolic. So it's, it's usually like we're either or, um, but metabolism is balancing those two things at all times. So it's not that one is on or off. There's no on or off switch on like, oh, well, now we are in anabolism or now we are in catabolism, right? Like we are doing all of those things all the time. So with both of those processes, that kind of goes back to how we can think about our metabolism in general, right? Like it's not just breaking things down and making energy, which is catabolic, right? Or breaking other things down. We are also building. So we need catabolism in terms of like breaking down our food to make energy in order to do anabolism, which is like building proteins, building tissues, like repairing things like our muscles or something like that. We're constantly doing both of those things at the same time. And so that is like one way to think about both of those things is we are doing both. And so in order to be able to do both, we have to support our metabolism with the building blocks of food, right? So we have to be able to to use that food to make energy and break it down and then also use the that food to build things, repair things, um, and support our activity. So that's kind of the background of those two things, but think of them as always happening together. It's just sometimes the emphasis of each changes. I, I know it, it's, it's very simple messaging, um, something, and I'm going to ask you like a real world example. Somebody's like, okay, that sounds like great in theory, but like how, what, what, what would I apply that knowledge to, mm-hmm. um, a situation that I would love like your clarification on is, um, 
So obviously fasted training, we know does not, you know, you get better outcomes athletically and may actually hurt you in the long run, depending on, on the type and intensity and uh, duration that you're doing. But long story short, I once heard somebody say, oh, you should never train fasted because you, it's, it's more catabolic than anabolic. Mm. And I was thinking, I mean, that sounds correct, but there's probably more to the story than that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm guessing, I mean, in terms of like thinking about it, if whether or not it would be more anabolic, right? Like running really, like is running ever anabolic itself, right? <laughs> like we're burning yeah, like. <laughs> And like, break, like we're breaking things to be able to do things, right? So we're not necessarily like, I mean, I wouldn't describe running as anabolic. Again, we're always doing both processes, so it's not like it's off, right? But I, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's like, oh, well, this is completely more catabolic than it is anabolic. I think in both cases, it would be more catabolic. Um, I mean, but yes, agree with your with your other points too, like fasted training, they're not necessarily any kind of benefit in the long term, like for athleticism or anything like that. It's more of a, I usually say it's more of a preference. If you prefer to train fasted, just understand that it could have detriments in your performance if you don't fuel during something that's especially like a long run. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like detrimental from a catabolic standpoint, like you're not going to be excessively breaking things down because like if you if you think of a workout right like you even if it's a lifting workout if it's a running workout like we are breaking down things to make energy so we're taking stored glycogen in our muscles and we're breaking that down and we're making energy out of it for our run or like you know when we're lifting we might be damaging our muscles or something like that but then afterwards so whatever you're doing afterward before that kind of thing like you're using the food that you eat afterward the sleep that you get, the rest, like that kind of thing to help rebuild the things that you've broken down. So like you might use a lot of glycogen during your run, but then when you go about the rest of your day and you eat carbs, you're going to replace that glycogen. So it's, does that make sense? Like it's not necessarily that it's like going to be detrimentally catabolic, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's more catabolic than not. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. this, this really perfectly kind of encapsulates the the messiness that is a, a, a lay person, a normal person's yeah. understanding of like how this all fits together, right? Because this is really complicated, right? And like the actual like basic explanation that you have, that was like two and a half minutes, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> like, but, and, but I'm saying, but like in a good way, right? You know, like, yeah, but even to just explain what seems like a relatively basic kind of not even like myth busting, but like, yeah, let me explain what actually might be happening here. Like that's going to be a lot of people are like, wait, okay, hold on. Like I'm lost. Like yeah. the other thing sounded way simpler. So like, yeah. I'm going to stick with that simple sound bite, even if it's not technically correct. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I feel like we get things that spin out of like, you know, when you read some like a thing on social media and it's like, and you, then you go back and you read like the study that it came from, whatever it does. And you're like, okay, well, like, Technically, there's a kernel of truth in here somewhere, but by the time somebody played telephone to get it into whatever it is on social media, you're like, it's been really distorted. Yeah. <laughs> like we have totally lost the thread of what actually was said in the original thing that was true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's just like that, like you said, the game of telephone. And it's it's also just like it's not sexy, right? Like <laughs> social media, like wants it to be sexy. It needs to be a quick soundbite. It needs to be fast. It needs to be 
something that gets you to click or to stay or, you know, something that will go viral is going to be something that does that. Um, so that's why I think it's important to really think about like what we see on social media, because it can be either a game of telephone to where what was originally maybe put in a scientific paper or said by somebody becomes something that is completely unrelated to what it originally was, or all the nuance has been distilled down because it fits better in, you know, a 2100 character caption or a 30 second video. Um, so it's, it's more sexy. So that's <laughs> something to think about. Yeah. Sure. My favorite recent example of this, it's not science related, but um, uh, Courtney DeWalter said something in in an interview last year to the effect of, I don't do long runs anymore. Like, you know, for her, she's like, I no longer do long runs, Um, (laughs) which like, okay, but let's dig into that. She's still running 20 miles most days, right? So she's doing yeah. back-to-back multi-hour runs. She's also been running for a couple decades. She also races pretty frequently. She's also not, te- and, but the, all the headlines were, Courtney DeWalter says you don't have to do ditch your long run. I'm like, no, that's not, no, that's not what she said. 99% of you still need to do a regular long run, right? Courtney DeWalter is literally one of the greatest ultra endurance athletes of all time. It's what she's doing is incredible, but yeah, you got to figure like, okay, but like in the context of her training, yeah, it's a totally different ball game. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It's, it always needs context and some nuance to it, even though (laughs) social media doesn't like to do that. So I want to ask about how your metabolism uh, responds to different macronutrient substrates. Um, If this is, and you're like, ooh, we did not prep this in the outline. Um, (laughs) Because I know for me, personally have a history of disordered eating and I was very low carb for a while, which totally wrecked me. And now we're not doing that anymore and things are much, much better. Um, But there are some really interesting beliefs about whether your body prefers to run on one substrate versus another versus, you know, using carbohydrate versus fat versus protein versus ketones, like versus lactate. I don't know, like all the things that your body versus alcohol, technically your body can use that for energy as well. Um, and, and this, this belief in some situations that your body works better, quote unquote, if it's using this fuel source versus that fuel source, Mm -hmm. how does, how does that work in our bodies? That's a great question. Um, I will spare you from going into deep metabolic pathways, but I do want to give you at least a little overview, right? And I, I want to preface this by saying that your body, like, I, I think it is worth saying, yes, a lot of people are saying, this is the best fuel. Like, this is this is what we were evolved to use. You were evolved to use it all, right? Like, you are able to use the, a variety of substrates in order to maintain your metabolism. So if you don't have a lot of carb availability, you can use ketones, you can use fat. Theoretically, you can convert protein into other things, which is typically glucose, but you can convert it to other things too. And you can use that. Like we are evolved to be able to be flexible with the fuel source that we're using. So I I will say that like first and foremost, Um, in terms of how they differ, again, it's going to kind of depend on your adaptation to them, right? So if you're somebody who is, I'm going to describe this as metabolic flexibility. Okay. So metabolic flexibility is essentially your ability to sense traffic, store and utilize nutrients that you eat. 
So somebody who is highly metabolically flexible can respond very easily to a fed state where after you've eaten a meal and a fasted state after it's been a while since you've had a meal. So we can easily switch our fuel sources for that. So when we're fed, that's typically going to be something like carbohydrate metabolism. And then when we're fasted, like when we wake up in the morning, for example, after an overnight fast, we're probably burning more fat. And so somebody who's metabolically flexible can switch between those very easily versus somebody who is metabolically inflexible, they're not going to be able to do that as easily. So they may maintain carbohydrate metabolism and burn more carbs, even when they're fasted, for example, or they might, if they're somebody who eats more of a high fat diet, that might be higher than it would be when, it, when you were eating a, a low, like, or a high carb or something like that. So that is kind of like the thing to think about. And you can change that, right? You can become more metabolically flexible and use a variety of substrates, um, you know, through exercise, depending on your weight, weight loss can be something that does it. Um, but again, I, I think exercise is one of the better ways to do that. And so people who are metabolically flexible can switch very easily. Um, there are differences in like, you know, whether or not you use carbs mainly for fuel or fat mainly for fuel. But again, it's it's all kind of related to the inputs that you're getting and how metabolically flexible that you are. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what does it look like? So when you say switch between, mm -hmm. again, I know I'm flipping like, yeah, turn off the carbs, turn on the fat, right? Yeah. What is it? Okay. I think somebody who's metabolically flexible probably doesn't even know that because they've never really had issues. And it's not something they think about. We tend to, I know for me, like I only tend to think about things when they start to become a problem. Like, yeah. Oh wait, hold on. Yeah. That's not this is like it should be happening. Mm -hmm. What are some really key signs that somebody is experiencing metabolic inflexibility? That's a great question. And I don't know if necessarily you would be able to like notice it yourself per se of being like, oh, really know I'm burning more fats today than <laughs> normal, you know what I mean? Like we wouldn't be able to necessarily notice that, but it's it's a characteristic that is more common among people who may be like more physically inactive, um, may have a diet that is like kind of higher energy availability that's really chronic, like that kind of time, or if there's like some kind of chronic condition like diabetes or something like that. like that can be a time in which we are more metabolically inflexible. Again, I don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you got it tested. And so like you are mainly going to notice things that are more related to like metabolic syndrome. Okay. So let me actually, before I misspeak <laughs> and say the wrong things for metabolic syndrome, I'm going to pull up because there's five different. Um, so metabolic syndrome, there's five different characteristics of this and you have to have three in order to be diagnosed with this. Um, so those five are um, abdominal obesity, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, high blood triglycerides, and low HDL. So if you have three of five of those, that is when you would be like technically diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. And so you'd more so notice those things. And again, you, yeah, you probably don't like physically notice, oh, my blood triglycerides are high, right? <laughs> like it's something you get from, from a test usually, but that would be more of something that you would notice without having to have like your metabolism tested, if that makes sense. Cause that's not very accessible to like the vast, vast majority of people. Um, but it's kind of related to that, if that makes sense. So that's what you would be looking for more so than just like 
some kind of physical feeling or something that you're metabolically inflexible. So what does that mean that so metabolic syndrome obviously right, has a has a host of, of um, measurable things attached to it? Like if you have this, this and this, you have metabolic syndrome. But like, what does that mean? If I have metabolic syndrome, what does that mean for me? Yeah. So again, like metabolic inflexibility and metabolic syndrome are going to be very closely tied. Okay. So if you have metabolic syndrome, so you have a lot of these things, you are probably less metabolically flexible. So you might be staying and utilizing more carbs, even when you're in the fasted state. And so you can't switch as easily between those. And so that means like you're kind of staying in this very narrow range and that's what would be consider metabolically inflexible, right? So that is more of how it would be associated. So that's not saying that they don't work, right? Like your metabolism still working, your metabolism's not broken. <laughs> it's just not as flexible to change substrates as it would be if you are more metabolically flexible. So I wanna make that clear, like your metabolism not broken regardless, and that can be changed and you be can become more metabolically flexible best way is through exercise, right? So if you're able to exercise and increase your activity, it doesn't have to be like a 10 mile long run, right? Like it can be something very, very small <laughs> that could help with this, increase your physical activity. That is gonna help you become more metabolically flexible. Do you find that people have unrealistic expectations of what they think their metabolism should be doing? <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I, I think people kind of expect their metabolism to do the heavy lifting and what they look like, um, which is how we have tended to moralize our metabolism um, and say like, oh, my metabolism is slow. So that is why I perceive that I look this way, or that is why I think that, you know, I've moralized this in a way that like my metabolism must be bad because I don't have X, Y, Z, or I can't do X, Y, Z activity or like something like that. And it's, it's not necessarily that it's bad, right? <laughs> like we, we have to consider like your metabolism is something again, that's going to respond to the inputs that you give it, but it's not necessarily indicative of your worth or how good something is, if that makes sense. I think I lost the train of <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think that relates to like the moralization of disease states, right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, if somebody gets sick from something that could have lifestyle factors, mm -hmm. it's their fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, there it's much more like, again, we tend to moralize that and we tend to say like, we tend to blame the individual, we tend to blame all these things, but it's much more complicated than that. And it's not necessarily like, only related to one thing like personal responsibility like there are many many factors even outside factors right that can impact both our health status but also our metabolism right like there's things that we can't control i can't control my genetics i can't control my age right and those things are also going to affect my metabolism so ultimately like moralizing it includes things that are outside of your control and things that yeah you have inside your control but at the same time like it's not bad or broken regardless of what the things that you actually have the input in, like regardless of that, it's not bad or broken. And it's the same thing with health too. I'm so glad you brought up age because uh, your metabolism does decline with age, <laughs> but I was reading recently, not the way that people tend to think about age-related metabolic declines, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what was the thing that you were reading? Yeah. So I was reading that, you know, like, oh, you know, when you get old, your metabolism absolutely plummets. And they're like, yes, but 
the declines are much more gradual and occur much later than originally thought. Mm -hmm. um, that yes, you do your metabolism does start to I would say downregulate like once you reach kind of social security age, right? Not once you hit forty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there are differences as we age and there are, there are slight differences also like in the menopause transition, right? Like I, I do want to say that it's like midlife. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of get like hung up on, but there are a lot of things that are changing as we get older that aren't just our metabolism. And I think that is kind of I'm more heavily related to our energy expenditure than just what our metabolism is doing. Right. Um, I'm thinking of, I believe it was 2021 or 2022, um, Herman Ponzer's group wrote that paper that really blew up on social media about um, like metabolism through the lifespan. I can send you the link for it if you want to include it in your show notes. But that one was kind of like showing that, yes, there was a slight decline, but at the same time, like it's not as drastic as we really thought it was. Um, and the thing to consider also about aging is we tend to slow down. We tend to not exercise as much. We tend to maybe change our consumption or our food or something like that. Like there are a lot of other things that are related to our energy expenditure that aren't just like our metabolic rate slowing. And I think those take more precedent or more weight over actual like metabolic changes. Like, yes, it does change, but there's other things that are changing that are more important. I'm also thinking, I mean, as we age, we know that muscle mass tends to decline. And then for, you know, sarcopenia is real. You look yep. at the MRIs of people who are, you know, inactive 70 versus active 70. It's like, they've got like 20% of the muscle mass of the active person. Like, mm -hmm. and as you've been saying, one of the best things you can do for your metabolism and your health, right, is exercise mm -hmm. and, and lift weights. And like, if you stop doing that, it's going to have kind of a, a knock-on effect of mm -hmm. everything else. Yeah, exactly. Like skeletal muscle is a very metabolically active organ when, especially when you're using it, right? Like if it's just chilling, it's not necessarily like weight for weight, technically like your brain and your liver are more metabolically active, but you have a lot more skeletal muscle than you have liver, right? So because I hope. <laughs> yeah, it's such a large portion of your body composition. And especially when you're moving it, like it uses a lot of energy to be able to do that. And so if you maintain that over time, you're yes, you're going to keep your energy expenditure up, but you're also going to help maintain that muscle mass, which is like you said, going to be related to outcomes of aging, like sarcopenia, um, or like, you know, sarcopenic obesity, or just frailty and quality of life and being able to do the things that you want to be able to do um, as you age too. So I'm a, the population. I know my audience, right? Hey, we're all runners here for the most part. And if you're not a runner, hi, you will be soon if you're listening to this show. Um, but most people in our world don't need to be convinced to exercise more or necessarily told to exercise more, right? Most people I know in this space are already running multiple times a week you know, multiple hours per week. We're probably hopefully, Hey guys, don't forget to strength train, mm -hmm. getting strength training in for a population that is already recreationally active mm -hmm. in the endurance space. Mm -hmm. What are some things that they can do to support their metabolism? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, so again, like you said, assuming that we're all also strength training, which we should strength train also as runners. Um, I am also really bad at this, just FYI. <laughs> I, I, I take precedent using my runs instead of my, my lifting, um, but we should also do that. So maintaining muscle mass is definitely part of something that you could do to help support your metabolism. 
um, sleeping and getting adequate rest, like actually letting yourself recover from your runs and get enough sleep per night, like that's going to help also. Um, I think one of the bigger bricks to consider is eating enough, um, making sure that you're really supporting the activity that you're doing um, and not being in that kind of like we had talked about earlier, like chronic energy deficit for a long term of actually doing the things that we need to do to eat enough to support the activity that we're doing. So if we are doing, you know, running and lifting and being very physically active, we should eat that weight also. It all comes down to the basics, right? I like know. Human- <laughs> <laughs> you, but, but they work for sure. I mean, and I think that's the, the, the challenging thing that a lot of people face. We go back to, you know, the complex topics being broken down into kind of miss appropriated sound bites on social media, but you know, it's not really sexy for somebody to say, well, in order to change my life, I just need to eat enough and like sleep more. <laughs> right. And you're like, maybe, yeah, that's maybe that might be all you need. Yeah. And for the most part, it's free. You don't have to buy anybody's weird supplement or like do some sort of weird light bath. Like you just eat more, <laughs> eat appropriately for your needs and get an extra hour of sleep. Yeah, exactly. Like we, we don't need the hacks. And, and I've said this, I've said this pretty often actually recently where we don't need to micromanage our bodies, right? We don't need to, and oftentimes we can't micromanage our bodies, right? So a lot of these like hacks or supplements or things like that are like, oh, this will activate mTOR. Like, and so they'll say, oh, this will boost your metabolism because it does that. And it's so a backstory mTOR because I just dropped that. mTOR is yes, a metabolic regulating enzyme, but it's also, I always describe it as like an airport terminal rather than like a, you do this and this happens. It's, it does a lot, right? So activating mTOR doesn't necessarily equate to one outcome. It does, it does a lot of things. So anyway, that's a sidebar. But again, going on the hacks and things like, the things that it's supposedly acting on or doing something to might not be something that's actually in our control, right? So we can take the supplement that could supposedly activate mTOR, but like mTOR activation is very important for a lot of different processes and your body highly regulates it. So you taking that supplement probably isn't going to help regulate mTOR because if it did, if we had that kind of level of control, like we would not have survived as a species, right? Like we have to be able to stay in like, and our body has to be able to regulate this. And we don't necessarily have input on these, all, all of these things. Um, and another example that I had like recently, recently as in like the last year talked about was um, it got really big to talk about like DNA methylation. Uh, like I'm on a methylation diet or something like that. Again, very stringently controlled biological process that if you had control over, like it would be terrible, right? Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't want control over a lot of things. And so we can't micromanage the things we can only give the building blocks. And even if the building blocks are the unsexy things like exercising and eating enough and sleeping, those are the things that are actually going to support what we're able to do. Um, the hard part just comes in actually doing them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm just imagining that like, Oh my God, you're totally right. If we could micromanage these incredibly complex biochemical processes, like we, there'd be like mutants walking around be like, yeah, if you, if you literally could affect that, then we would like, we would be like freaks. Like, yeah, exactly. It would be crazy. Anything else because I'm like busy thinking about my methylation, right? Like we, we can't do that. And, and to an extent, like, thank God, right. We, that we can't do that. Um, we can only provide the building blocks needed for our metabolism to do the things that it does. And so that's why, even though a lot of these things sound really basic, like that's the thing that's going to have more of an impact than like some kind of tiny supplement or like somebody's biohacking protocol or, 
or like you said, the lights. I don't know where the lights came from. But. <laughs> and the other thing I, I want to point out, and this goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, um, it, kind of variation metabolic rates among populations, just like in general, mm-hmm. like we're not talking about one person's, you know, uh, metabolic rate being orders of magnitude greater than the other, right? Like, let's say, let's throw it all and say, sure, fine. Let's say that weird, like, I don't know, pill that you take actually does boost your metabolism. Even if it did, Mm -hmm. it would probably be like a couple dozen calories. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, like the effect of that, like we're talking about tiny, tiny actual possible changes, if that even was a thing that was effective, which it's probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Or it's something that's like local. So like capsaicin is a good example of this. Like, so people are always like, oh, spicy foods will boost your metabolism, right? It might locally. So like maybe a few of the cells of your gut lining might increase their metabolism, but like on a whole body scale, we aren't having that major effects. Or like you said, like, even if there was a potential effect, it probably wouldn't be that drastic. Right. And, and in, in order for us to like, even thinking about like how we manage our, our weight, right. Cause that's how a lot of people relate to metabolism. Like even 50 to hundred calories of a difference is like, you know, that can either be a small or it can be a big difference just depending on the person or depending on the context. So if it's like maybe a dozen calories that is burned off of that, like if you eat an extra bite of food, like it's, that's going to be another dozen calories also. Right. So, so like micromanaging to that level is not really, it's very hard to do. It's very and nigh near impossible for most people. I love it. All of this to say, Hey guys, just do the basics and you'll probably be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. I hope that everyone takes from this episode. Like, yes, like focusing on the basics is the hard part. Honestly, like it is hard to get enough sleep and to eat enough and do all the things, right. It is very hard to do that. Um, but also that your metabolism is not broken. So I hope those are the two things that people take from this. (laughs) Stephanie, thank you so much for being here today. Like I said, I wanted to chat with you for so long now, and it did not disappoint. And I love following you on Instagram. Uh, I Before we go, what are you currently researching right now? Because I know, obviously, you know, you are an athlete, mm-hmm. but you're a cancer metabolic researcher. So like, what are you studying? What are you looking at? Oh, yes. I love talking about our research. Um, so I am doing a couple of different things. I'm involved with some trials that are looking at um, physical activity during cancer treatment to see if that could potentially help people receive the optimal chemotherapy dose. Um, so that is a really interesting trial that's going on. Um, that is part of the Exercise and Nutrition in Cancer Treatment Outcomes in NICDO consortium, um, which has a exercise oncology and oncology nutrition network that if you are interested in that kind of area, they have regular free webinars for everyone to attend. Um, So highly recommend that. I can share that link with you also. But I um, am also doing a pilot study that's looking at the metabolic response to food in individuals with non-small cell lung cancer who are either weight stable or who are losing weight to see if weight loss affects how Um, people respond to food when they have cancer. So that is one of the more exciting things that I'm working on right now. Um, But also, like I said, involved with some exercise trials as well. That's so cool. So what do you mean respond to food? Like in what context? So this is a great question. It's metabolism. I'm doing some metabolism assays. So I'm actually feeding people 
a liquid mixed meal. So it's, it's a boost plus is what it is. So mixed meal, meaning that it has all three macronutrients in it. Um, and I am seeing how they respond to that, that meal over the course of four hours. So taking a lot of blood at different time points, but also using, um, what's called a metabolic hood, where it looks like a little spacesuit that you put over your head and it measures the oxygen that you're, you know, breathing in and the CO2 you're breathing out, um, and estimates your energy expenditure from that. So that is, I'm trying to look at metabolic flexibility actually, uh, with that population. So trying to see if that is affected when you lose weight, when you have cancer. Interesting. And the other study that you're involved in, um, how, how many, uh, participants are in that? So this is actually, it's what's called a consortium. So it's actually like four large studies that are looking at different kinds of exercise and different types of cancer um, and different outcomes, but they're all kind of related to each other. Um, so this is a trial that's in colon cancer. And I think the, the goal, it just started. So we're, we're actively recruiting for this one, um, but it is, the goal is I think 219, I believe. So hopefully we'll be a pretty large trial and we'll be able to say, you know, is, is there a dose of exercise that actually helps people receive chemotherapy or helps them tolerate their treatment better? So that is kind of the, the overarching goal of it, but hopefully we'll hear something in the next three to five years. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. So the study design for that, is that self-reported exercise? Is it broken into groups? Like you are expected to do this much exercise? Like how is that, um, how is that laid out? Yes, it's broken into groups. So it's actually a dose response trial. So trying to actually see like, is there a dose of chemotherapy that, or dose of exercise that is best for receiving the optimal dose of chemotherapy? Um, and it is a combination of self-report that is also um, like actually measured with a smartwatch. So we have them record their exercise bouts on paper. And then we also measure it with the smartwatch and accelerate because it has an accelerometer in it. So we're able to get um, very like objective measures of, um, and you know, measures of actual activity time as well. Um, and the really cool thing about this trial, I can send you the link for this so that more people can learn about it if they're interested. Um, but the really cool thing about this is that we actually give them a treadmill. And so they're able to use the treadmill to do the aerobic exercise at home and then they get to keep it afterwards. So that's a really free treadmill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool thing to, to be able to like provide that, um, mm -hmm and have, have it more, be more accessible to people so that they can feel like they could actually do it when, especially during, um, cancer treatment, because it's definitely like a lot that's happening during that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, with the amazing ability for us to use technology in this way, that's incredible, but it also makes me wonder if there aren't some studies or, you know, hypotheses that may need to be poked at mm -hmm. because of how the data may have been gathered in like the fifties when they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's sound. Thank you for self-reporting. I'll trust you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and obviously like, I know that the scientific method is more rigorous than that, mm -hmm. but still. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And there's, there's definitely as we get better technology and more like objective rather than subjective measures of exercise and diet, right? Like diet is a huge thing that people, you know, will, and it's because again, we've moralized diet too. So people are like, oh, I didn't eat that. Like I just won't write it down or I won't report it, um, which is understandable. Right. Um, and as we get more objective measures of those things, I think it will be important to ask some questions again, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish you all the best in your research and I hope your findings are fascinating. Uh, and I look forward to continuing to follow you. And if somebody's interesting, interested in following you and learning more about the work that you're doing, where can they do that? They can find me mostly on Instagram at steph.compton.phd. That's where I found you. Yeah. <laughs>
Thanks for being out most days. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.